So chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. And read along with me if you would. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed he is but flesh, yet all his days shall be 120 years. Now there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the the daughters of men, that they bore children to them, and those were mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, that he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now Noah begat three sons, Shem, Chem, and Yafith. And the earth was corrupt also before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, it will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and covered inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and its, you shall finish it to the cubit from above and set the door of the ark on its, in its side. You shall make it with a lower second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy them under heaven, from under heaven. All flesh which is in the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. And Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Will you pray with me, please? God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would cause your Holy Scripture to come alive, to burst open and be alive before us right now. God, by your Spirit, move. Bring forth your Word. Bring illumination. And from that, bring life. And I pray today for each of us that our ears will be open, our hearts will be ready to receive the planning of your Word. God, as we have sought you in prayer, I pray now, God, you would do that. That you would take this time and do something glorious and fundamental that each one of us today will find ourselves in a more meaningful, a more personal, a more powerful, a more irreversibly abandoned relationship to you. And God, that you would today make clear your call on our lives, that you would make clear your love for us, that you would make clear, God, what, you, what we're in the middle of by saying yes to you. 
And in that, God, let your scripture just burst open for us now. Color in the lines, Lord, I pray. And in doing so, Lord, may we say today, we have encountered the living God. And in that, we give you glory, honor, and praise. So we commit this time to you, Lord. Let every moment be, every second be redeemed by you and you be exalted upon it. As we commit this time to you now, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say, from which, of course, you would test all things to be true or counterfeit. Now, let's walk kind of up to this point in regards to the context of this particular text. Go back to chapter 3 with me. That's where we start this whole concept. Uh, In this chapter, uh, what we have in verse 15 again, we have a fallen man and a fallen woman, and God makes this statement in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you, this is speaking of the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we all of a sudden start to see that there's going to be two very distinct groups of people. A group of people that somehow will make their ties to this woman, and a group of people that will somehow make their ties to this serpent. And again, who made it very clear from the beginning, through deception of this to the woman, that there is this that God's keeping you from something. And what he was keeping them from was this tree that was the knowledge of good, and the word is tov, and evil, and the word is ra. Now, tov is something they already had. Matter of fact, God had made every tree grow in the garden that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. They knew good. What they didn't know was evil, ra, which means, in, in essence, it means harm or pain or suffering. Or, and then it's important to recognize every Hebrew word comes from a verb. And this particular one, the whole idea of what God was trying to keep them from was all of this horrible suffering and pain and, and all those things that come with disobedience. In chapter 4 now, we start to see how that bears forth. Now, we have two groups of people. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. She said, I've acquired a man from the Lord, and she bore again. And this time, his name was Chabel. Now, Cain, again, Cain means containment or acquisition or mortality. Chabel, or Abel, means nothing. What a horrible thing. You wouldn't want to be the younger brother, especially by the time the story is done. Now, I mean, what you have, then, is we have two different people. With, by the way, again, God had told us there will be two groups of people, one, if you will, under the tutelage of the woman, and one under the tutelage of the enemy. And what we find right away is there's two guys. Two young men, are, two children are born, both boys. It appears to be twins. Notice she conceived once, bore twice. And in that, one is very different from the other. Both of them have very different occupations. One's working and tilling the ground, which God told us was actually going to have to be the fruit of our own work in chapter 3. And then the other one is going to be, in essence, a shepherd. Both bring a sacrifice before God. One is acceptable. It's important to note it wasn't just that the sacrifice wasn't acceptable, but because the sacrifice wasn't acceptable, the sacrificer wasn't acceptable either. And God puts one with the other. And what we see in one is that someone offers the work of their hands, and the other one offers a gift of faith, the first fruits plus the fat. And in both cases, God responds. In one case, God responds uh, unpleasantly, and that's to Cain. It's important to note in this, by the way, that God makes clear that Cain knew what was right and doesn't offer it. Because he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That tells me that Cain knew what was right but chose wrong anyways. And what's interesting is he chose wrong by choosing the work of his hands. By choosing his own work, that was what God said was unacceptable. And Cain offers it anyways. And God says, I told you this wasn't going to be acceptable. Now you know what's right. Choose right, Cain. But he doesn't. And he has one of two choices. He either has the option to get right or the option to get rid. And unfortunately, he chooses poorly. And immediately with these two young men, 
We have one that kills the other. The very first time we look and see two young men, one under the tutelage of the woman, one under the tutelage of the enemy, and immediately we see death. Now we saw death the first time that the enemy interfaced with somebody, interfaced with the woman, and we saw death from Adam and Eve as a result of that. Now we see that born out in a very physical sense as we see these two young men, one each a representative, if you will, of those two. Now I don't even have to say that this is some kind of hyperbole. All you have to do is read First John because it will tell us about it. It says, in this is the children of God versus the children of the enemy are manifest. And he'll say, not like Cain who hated his brother. And he uses Cain as an example of the person who was under the tutelage and influence and guardianship, if you will, of the enemy. So God made that clear even in 1 John. By the time we get to the end of this book, he'll make that evident. Now, here what we find is immediately death is the issue. And of course, that will perfectly bring light to the fact that when Jesus stands before these religious leaders, he will call them sons of the enemy. John the Baptist does the same thing. He says, you brood of vipers. You know what a brood is? A brood your family. I mean, you see a woman, and she's got a stroller with one kid and another kid hanging on the other end of it, one kid pulling on her back pocket, another kid going, Mom! That's her brood. And when John looks, the first thing he says to the religious leaders is, you family of serpents. Now think about how that plays out. Who warned you to flee from this time, this wrath to come? And don't you think for a second you got it easy because you're already Jewish. God can take these stones and make children of Abraham out of it. Now, interesting, because those same religious leaders will rise up and do the very same thing that Cain did to Chabel, and they'll rise up against that Son of God, the totally perfect and only begotten Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and kill him just like Cain did his brother. And God even says about to Cain, to Cain he says, that this blood that your brother was spilt, his own blood was spilt, cries out to me. There's a testimony in that blood, Cain. And that testimony, unfortunately, is against you right now. Now, with all of that, Cain will have to be, there will be a response, and that is you're cursed, Cain. You're cursed away from this. This ground that you were going to work on that bore so much fruit will now bear forth futility instead of fruitfulness. And you will be a wanderer and a vagabond around the earth. And he goes and moves to a place called Nud. And Nud, by the way, in Hebrew simply means wander. And so basically, Cain lives in a land of Wanderville. That's kind of his attitude. And you realize, walking outside of the presence of God, which is what we read here, that he was outside of the presence of God, that what you have is a group of people that are just going to live a life of fruitless futility and wandering. That's what their life is like. And of course, you don't have to look far to see that outside us. I mean, there are vain pursuits, and there are people definitely in hot pursuit of, of, of something, but it's still futile fruitless and wandering in the end of it all. I mean, you, you go in the end of it all, it, as Solomon would say, it's like grasping at sand or putting oil in your hand. You just can't hold on to it. You take money and it flies away. And boy, don't we know that one. Well, with all of that, then God starts to develop these two lineages. Now, again, remember the whole concept was what he told us in chapter 3, that there's going to be these two different families. Now, we're not saying that what Satan literally did was progenated with Eve. Now, that's what some people want to play. But I, let me just say something on this, and I, and I don't want to develop it much because it's kind of side to the point, but it is right in our text, this idea that there are these two different children. Now, if we thought logically for a second, and then the, the concept's called the serpent seed theory, and the idea is that Satan somehow got together with, put on a little bit of Barry White or Kenny G and got together with Eve, and in from that was born Cain, well, then the problem you have is is that he's a spirit. That's what the Scripture says. And, and by the way, 
all angels are because Hebrews, the last verse in Hebrews 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits created to serve those who would later inherit salvation. I mean, it's pretty evident that they're spirit beings. Now, here's the problem. Let's say you weren't saved. Let's say you didn't have any concept of God. And I came to you and I said, well, according to chapter 6, it says the sons of God and the daughters of men and the sons of God must have been angels. But first of all, how do you get an angel that's a spirit being, being with these women and from this were born giants, which, by the way, it would be the most awful, unfair rendering of this text. Well, then what you have is, well, think about this for a second. You go, okay, so a spirit can physically be with a person. Now, what's to stop you from thinking then, well, exactly how did Mary get pregnant? Isn't God a spirit? And the reason I say that is that's how weird that could get, because you opened that door the moment you started saying that these two interface. Now, on the other side of that, for what it's worth, it tells us when the Sadducees are trying to nail Jesus on this whole concept of afterlife and of resurrection, they talk about a woman who has a husband and he dies. And she has another husband because according to Deuteronomy 25, the younger brother has to marry her to have a son in his name and he dies. And then he has a younger brother. I mean, sooner or later, you've got to have to be careful who your older brother marries just in case he dies. And if you really don't like her, you would do whatever you could to keep him healthy, you know? And so, but ultimately then they're like, okay, so like a classic liberal approach, make up a story and see how that plays out. And like, well, so exactly who, uh, who is uh, she married to then in the afterlife? Jesus' response is, you err not knowing the scriptures. Because in heaven, they are neither married nor given in marriage, but rather they're like the angels of God in heaven. Now that tells me angels of God don't get married. Which means as far as you're concerned, if you'll pardon me for saying, this is the only place where you're going to be married to another human being. Because truth be told, you're already engaged in heaven to the Lord of Lords. So, and guys, that ended up big me. Now, back into our text. So hopefully we've put a nice little seal on that so we don't have to get distracted by that. We can get to really the point of the, of the text. Now, in all of this, in these two lineages, the first, of course, is Cain. And remember how we looked through those names. Mortality dedicated to this destruction who smites God, presenting himself as God, who mourns. That's reading Cain's lineage from top to bottom. Remember, there are two other things that are developed in there. One is that though these guys are certainly making some form of accomplishments, we see accomplishments in agriculture and in artistry or in art as well as in science, yet in all of that's all they have to say for themselves. But there were two things that have become very predominant I could consider again in chapter 4. One of them is this guy Lamech, who is the last guy that we sort of see as highlit in that chapter. That particular guy, if you remember, is the, first, is the founder of bigamy. Remember, he's the first guy that has more than one wife. Important to note, again, this is the lineage of people who are not dwelling in the presence of God. And one of the things you see is that the guy gets two wives. Point to be made. Second thing is how clear it is that on that particular side unique to it is violence. Notice, first of all, the father of that whole lineage is Cain, who kills his brother, and winds up all the way down to this guy, Lamech, who, by the way, brags about it. He's like the first gangster rap guy as he starts blaying out this whole idea that he sort of he killed a guy for wounded. Like, yo, let me tell you what, I popped him, tap, 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 with some caps. You know? And the whole idea is, some guy wounded me, some guy bothered me, cut me off on the road with his chair, and I said, hey, boom. You know? And you get, that's what we see on Cain's side. And I go, okay, so what I see on this side that is not dwelling in the presence of God is this bigamy. And if you think about it in simple sense, it's just a complete non-care for women, a non-dedication to a single woman, but rather, to be honest, playing them as if they were a toy and a tool. And as well, this whole idea that men, their attitude towards men was take them or leave them. We can kill them if we have to. Now, that becomes the attitude on Cain's side. 
Then we look at that Seth side, which is the replacement, if you'll pardon me for saying, a compensation. That's what that exactly says. The last couple verses, and look at it with me so you know I'm not making this up. Look at those last few verses in chapter 4. In chapter 4, notice again this guy, Lamech, his little song. It says here, again in verse 23, to his wives, Ada and Zilach, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain was avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Then Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, and this guy's name was Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Chabel, who came killed. And Seth, by the way, to him was a son born, and his name was Enosh. And then men began to call in the name of the Lord. Difference between chapter 4 and 5, of course, we have a group of family who aren't dwelling in the presence of God and a group of people who are calling on the name of the Lord. Really, really big deal. Because again, then we start looking at this lineage of people, including a man named Enoch, who by the walked with God and then was no more. And it's interesting, again, on Cain's side, and think about it, from the beginning, here was the whole idea. God on my terms, that's the whole fundament. God says, hey, look at Cain, you know the rules. These are the rules, Cain, and it's not acceptable. He says, no, I'm going to take God on my terms, not on your terms. And that becomes the whole fundament of Cain. And as a result of that, we have a non-care for men. You can kill him if you want to. And a non-care for women, you can marry as many as you want to. That becomes the unsaved side. Are you with me on that? Okay. Now we have Seth's side. And again, the whole idea is his compensation. And we look at those names again, and it says man's compensation for his mortal or human mortality is that the blessed God shall descend, dedicated to this, his death shall bring those who mourn or the one who mourns rest. And that becomes the lineage on Seth's side. And now all of a sudden I've looked and I've said, okay, mortality dedicated to destruction, blessed God shall descend on this side, blessed God shall descend, dedicated to this, his death shall bring the one who mourns rest. And then it says, because he will bring great comfort, this guy Noah, which means rest. He'll bring great comfort. And the word, by the way, is the word for sign. <sighs> now that could be a negative or a positive. In this chapter, that same word for sigh is used negatively. So now I'm looking at these two lineages, very distinct. Now here's the issue as we get into chapter 6. Because if you think about it, the most horrific thing that has ever happened from God, God's motion, not man's motion, that would be chapter 3, the most horrific moment that's ever happened so far with God is this moment here. God is about to wipe out all of humanity except for a family. Now I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, that's a pretty awful thing. And you think, well, what will it take for God to do this? I mean, would God do this again? Because actually the scripture tells us he's about to do that again. What does it take for that to happen? As a matter of fact, God makes really clear in the Gospels, Jesus speaking, that those last days will be like the days of Noah. And all of a sudden I have to go, well, what do I learn about the days of Noah? That's what we'll get to next week. But what do I learn about all of that so that I can go, is this really that season? Well, again, take a look at chapter 6 in light of all of that. And now as we dig into this text, I really believe God has something to say more than just intellectually, but about us personally. And this is how it begins again. It came to pass that men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Okay, that shouldn't surprise us. In other words, people had babies and some of those babies were girls. Now up to this point, notice though, God hasn't really focused at all on that. Up to this point, he's focused on this man had a son, and this man's son's name was this, this man had a son, and his name was this. But God says, now let's point out another point of this, that boys weren't the only thing born here. Women were born as well. And when those women were born, it tells us in verse 2 that the sons of God, 
saw the daughters of these men and that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now don't miss this. Look at what it says. That these sons of God, and, and again, because I'm not trying to look at this from a litany of other commentaries, and I'm just trying to look at it as a guy that's just lived on, an, lived on an island, never really opened up this book, and I went and said, wow, there's two very clear, distinct groups of people, Cain's group and Seth's group. They seem like two different groups of people. And now I see in this, there are two distinctly groups of people. There are these sons of God and these daughters of men. And I look at them, and I say, what's the first thing I see as a result of that? I see these men. And what it tells us is they took wives. Notice it's not a wife, but wives. It's plural. Of these men, as many, however, whenever, whatever way they wanted to, as they chose. And that's the whole context that we're looking at here. In other words, by this verse, now we're only two verses into chapter 6, and we have two distinct groups of people. Those are going to be under the governance. We're calling on the name of the Lord, which again is the idea, God, your terms, not mine. I'm calling on your name. You're not doing things according to my name. I'm doing them to yours. I'm calling on you, God. You make the rules on this side. And you have Cain on this side. It's like, look, God, on my terms. Now notice again, Cain, it isn't that Cain didn't do something religious or sacrificial or anything along those lines. Just because something is religious doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's good. The question is, whose terms is it on? Is it on your terms or is it on God's terms? And when someone comes and says, look, I don't like God because he won't let me be who I want to be. And you start thinking, well, then clearly you're on this side because it's on your terms. I'll take God as long as He lets me be who I want to be, who I was born to be. And I think, well, you know what's funny? I was born violent, and if you really want to practice who you were born to be, I could practice who I'm born to be. Is it okay with you if I beat you up? They're like, well, that's not really nice. Well, why not? That's who I am. Stop judging me, bigot. You know, and you realize that that's where that gets. On this side, it's like, look at God, you have the right to do whatever you want with me because you're, you're God. And all of a sudden, by verse 2, these guys over here who are like, all right, God, I'm calling your name, I'm calling, whoa, who is that? And who is that? <laughs> and who is that? And who is that? And these guys start looking at you like, you know what? You know, Cain's not dwelling in the presence of the Lord, but he's got some fine girls over there. I think we need to go and do some ministry, some outreach. You know, and so we're going to kind of head over here, and we head over here, and we're like, mm, mm, mm. No, I'm not going to look at anyone because that would get real weird. But we're just going to, it's going to imagine, you know, and this is Ambassador Tony speaking, right? And, this is, and they're looking, and they're going like, Ooh, who are you? And they're like, well, you know what? You don't have to dwell in the presence of God because we could get funky fresh without it. And, and all of a sudden, they're kind of looking, and they kind of look, and they're like, well, then in that case, I'll take you and you and you and you any way I want, however I want, and we're just going to call ourselves married. And I start to think, now, wait a minute. That takes me back to chapter 4 because there was already bigamy. And where did we find bigamy? We saw bigamy on Cain's side. And it's interesting to note when you're on this side following God and you're calling on His name and there's a group of people and they have, listen, 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 they have their own society over here. This is my society. This is my, this is the way we do things, our value system. This is the way, this is how we elevate people. This is what makes them important. This is who we value. And in all of that, and we start coming over here and we're just going to kind of tiptoe over to this side. Understand when you do that, you're crossing over without bringing the crossover. And it always seems to happen. You usually kind of come without backup and you come without a clear plan of what it is you want to come on. I'm just, I'm just going to be a Christian and this is how it's going to happen. It's going to be osmosis. You know, I'm going to come over here and I'm just going to like sweat Christian vibe. And as I sweat Christian vibe, and it's like people are going to go, ooh, I think I feel something 
Christian happening. And I mean, no, people, no, there, no, there are situations where stuff like that kind of happens, but sooner or later someone has to bark out the gospel if someone's going to get saved. But on the other side of it, these people aren't sweating sin. People aren't going, I'm going to be real kind of tender and gentle about my sin. They're like, look at this is sin, this is sin, this is sin. Do it with me. Come on. I mean, that's what the songs are about. I mean, on this side, it's like, look, I'm going to do this to you all night long. I'm gonna, yeah, whatever. And you got that happening. Over here, it's kind of like, we're going to kind of hint about our Christianity. So over here, you got like this kind of guy that's got big spine and going, this is what we do. And over here, we're like jellyfish going, I don't really want to offend you. And in all of this, I look at the text and I go, we have to verse 2. And already, you've got, wait, wait, these two things that were kind of telltale symptoms or signs uniquely of Cain's lineage. And remember, one of them was bigamy was the way that a man treated a woman. And the way that a man treated a woman was, well, you and you and you and you, any way you want to. and Or more so, any way I want to. Because if I take God on my terms, I'm going to take you on my terms too. Because after all, I make the rules then. And all of a sudden, you, it's like, man, okay, three minutes on MTV and you're going to find this anytime you turn it on. And I look at this and I start to think, wow, wait a minute. The whole point of this was, I had these two lineages. I had this lineage of people who weren't dwelling in the presence of God. And the lineage of those who were dwelling in the presence of God, calling on his name, which one is going to have the greater influence? And already, I mean, imagine if there were an equal amount of people, but they were on a boat. And as they were on a boat, each one's on a side. So the boat's like this. Sooner or later, someone's going to move over to one side and the boat's going to start to lean. Well, which side is the, which way is the boat leaning? What's interesting, because if you know anything about a boat, the way that it leans tends to be the way that it starts to steer. And I tend to think, well, already what we're starting to see is this Seth lineage over here is starting to make their way over to the other side of the boat, and the boat's starting to steer like this. Oh, but there is one other thing. The other thing that becomes very clear, again, with the lineage of, of Cain, do you remember that other symptom? It's violence. Well, not kind of the fundamental thing. Now, look at the text with me. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Now, if you're going to try to make this angels, you've got all kinds of problems. One is, if they were demons by this point, they're not going to be called sons of God. I mean, think about that. But if this is what it looks like, the way that the, everything fits within the context, what we're seeing is that God's people have lost their influence. But what's interesting, it isn't that they lost their influence because they, well, because they were overcome, but to be honest, because they were forfeiting. I mean, the bottom, the bottom line was they just stopped moving in the direction God called them to. And I don't read anywhere in here anyone's calling on the name of the Lord anymore. Verse 3, and it says, And the Lord said, I have my spirit shall not strive with men forever. Indeed, his flesh is... Well, a man's just flesh. Now, God's making one or two comments here. He's either kind of saying, well, now, now think about this. Again, we're just trying to approach Scripture as if we didn't have 65 volumes of commentaries behind us and a bunch of guys in, you know, in big leather jackets or leather coats or big couches smoking pipes telling you what makes them an expert. If I just looked at it as a simpleton and I looked at this and I went, first of all, my spirit shall not strive. It's interesting for what it's worth. The word strive is the word vin in Scripture. Uh, and for whatever it's worth, this word simply means um, to plead, to beg. And I think, wow, do you realize this is the second time I've seen the Holy Spirit? I mean, if I were to learn who the Holy Spirit was according to the book of Genesis, these are the two things I know about him so far. Is one is that he, mo- that he moved when life came to be. If you remember, it was like the Spirit moved, undulated, vibrated, moved, whatever the case would be. That he moved, the Word of God went forth, 
Out came light, and then came life. And I think that's the same thing that happened to every one of us if we said yes to Jesus. The Spirit of God moved. The Word of God went forth. God brought illumination. We started to see what was really the truth, that there was a choice to be made about this. And from that came life. And that's the first time I saw the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's fundamental in giving life. And now the second time what I see is that he's pleading. He's begging. He's pleading. He's, he's like a like a lawyer, but he's somebody who's sequestering. You can't go, do you realize how, how insane you're being? And I start to think, well, who do you think he's pleading with here? Well, according to this, it's men. So then the issue is, God makes a judgment call. And he goes, look, it, my spirit's not going to do this forever with these people. Because they're flesh. Now, Think of the doctrine you're going to come up with this. If it's because they're just human beings, because after all I made them and they're that's good, and so I'm, why my spirit says I strive with them? Because after all they're just made out of flesh. What does that tell you about God's care for people? Or if, as I continue to read the scripture and I go, okay, mark that so that when I get to what flesh is throughout scripture, maybe I'll understand this better and I get to the book of Romans and it tells us that people are either going to walk in the spirit or in the flesh. And it's interesting, those are the two terms he uses. He says to be fleshly minded, carnal minded, socks is the word uh, in, the, in the Greek. It means, he says to be fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life. And I start looking and going, God says, look at there, either you're going to walk in the flesh or you're going to walk in the spirit. That's what Romans makes really clear. And God looks at us and he says, my spirit's not going to strive forever with these people because they're really just in the flesh. And all of a sudden I go, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And he's looking, and, and, but here's the, here's the scary part, beloved. And I hope you can follow me on this because I'm not looking at this going, wow, this will be really cool to teach this. I'm looking at this going, okay, how does this relate to me? How is this going to pertain to me? And then the, the grievous thing, it isn't like God goes, you know what's really amazing is Cain's family's walking in the flesh. Because, duh, he's walked outside of the presence of God, what's left? But what seems like the most amazing thing about this is it, is it gets me about this, is that God's not making that call for the moment on Cain. He's making that call, he's making that call on me. On us. Because the issue isn't anymore whether Cain's going to walk in the flesh. That's a no-brainer. He wasn't in the presence of the Lord the moment he chose to kill his brother. But his own people that were calling on his name, God goes, whatever happened to that? Remember when you called on my name and it was on my terms? Now all of a sudden you said, God, everything but this room. And then it became, God, everything but these two rooms. And then, God, everything but don't touch my finances or don't touch this aspect or my identity or where I'm at with this person or don't mess with that relationship. Don't get me involved in that. All of a sudden, everything became, you moved over from God on your terms to God on my terms. And all of a sudden he's like, look, do you realize when you do that, you're in the flesh. And then he looks at it and he goes, what happened to my people? You know why they lost influence? I mean, here they are. And you know, what's a quick way to get a guy in the flesh? Parade a bunch of women in front of him so you can have your choice. And they may not be able to say yes to all of these other women, but he might say yes to what it is in his mind when he's alone. What's on the internet. And the same thing still happens. I've heard it said, we shouldn't be amazed that sinners are willing to sin. What should surprise us is that saints aren't willing to be holy. God looks at this, and and what's amazing is that God's going to grieve. And the word is to feel physical pain. And I can't help but think that, that I could be the one making him grieve. Because God's like, I don't want you in the flesh. What good is that? I have enough people in the flesh. I have no, I have no shortage of people in the flesh. I want people in the spirit. And isn't that who you're supposed to be here? And the first thing I see is that it's evident because the first thing is there's no commitment to an individual. Now it's, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not into women for the sake of serving you. I'm into it for the sake of me. I'm going to choose whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want, because that's just who I am now. And 
And he goes, look, my Holy Spirit's not going to play this game forever with you. This isn't the way we play this. Now, we do read, and so we have at least some very distinct uh, quantifiable things, that Noah was 500 when his kids were born. They appear to be triplets as well, or... His wife really had something pretty crazy happening because three kids were born to him when he was 500. Uh, And the flood comes at 600. And we read that God says this statement, and then he says that Noah had these sons. It could very well be that this was 120 years before the flood. All that would have been was 20 years before these kids were born. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I I do know what these two kids, their names mean. Uh, One means hot, and one means expanse. Um doesn't sound like those are names that were necessarily driven by that com- that command. Uh, I really don't know. It could be. So that's within biblical rounds. All we just know is that, look, at 120 years, that's it. Now, that could mean that's as long as a person's going to live, and that's it. I mean, we've had these 900-year-old guys. But we think about it, the oldest guy that ever lived was 969. And we think, well, that guy, man, he obviously far live, outlived anyone else. No one's going to live to 950. If you think about it, that's only 19 years less. That's something to be said. But he's like, but you know what? We're done with this. And indefinitely after that point, we don't see people living that long. So certainly that plays out as well. The most amazing thing is if I wanted to understand the Holy Spirit from this, this is the two things I'd understand is that he wants to move to bring life and he's begging with people to actually get holy. He's begging God's people to get holy. And I started thinking, wow, he doesn't sound really offensive or something I should fear, but rather someone that I should heed. And and with that, again, is he's pleading the next time, by the way, for what it's worth, to, that I'll actually see the Holy Spirit mentioned in any frame or function is going to be in Genesis 41 when Pharaoh, of all people, looks at Joseph and says, who else is there in my kingdom that has the Spirit of God like this guy? And it's interesting, as the term is Elohim, and again, that's plural, but, it's, but I, I think, wow, the next time is going to be the guy that's going to be raised up to save both the Gentile world and the, and the um, Jewish world. And I think that makes an awful lot of sense to me because the Holy Spirit was doing both, bringing life, and he was pleading with people to get holy. And then again, let's go back into our text here, because now we have to deal with verse 4. Obviously, by the time we get past these handful of verses, I don't want to say get past them like there's something, a box to tick. But after we get through establishing this, the rest of it just becomes real evident. Because verse 4 tells us the second thing. And again, if what I have established is the first five, verse, or first five chapters, I see that those two fundamental things in regards to Cain's, Cain's world were what? Remember, the first of them, again, was bigamy. Remember what the second was? Oh, come on, you could say it. It was violence, right. Don't make me beat you up to say it. Just kidding. Um, now look at verse, verse 4 with me. And then there were giants on the earth. Now for what it's worth, the word is nephilim or nephil. Now the word nephil, for what it's worth, remember, every Hebrew word comes from a verb. And the nephil, the base word for that, simply means to bully. That's an interesting term. So we get giants from the idea that as a giant tends to be, it's always, you know, it's third grade, you're six, seven years old or whatever that is, and the, the one kid grows inordinately large in your class, and he's always the, kind of the one that walks away with everyone's lunch money. And he's just naturally that way. Is he a giant? Well, compared to everyone else, certainly he is. Now, does the word translate as, as giant? Certainly it does. It also translates as bully and tyrant as well, because it's the word that's used for both of those in Scripture as well. Now, this is what he tells us. But there were a group of people during this particular period of time that were inordinately bullish, tyrannical. Now, different places, people, people go different ways with it. You creation scientists often will say, well, this is, this is dinosaurs. No. Now, again, let me just say this. There's biblical 
There's extra-biblical and there's anti-biblical. I really like that. In other words, this is what the Bible clearly says. We'll say that we can all agree this is quantifiably that. Noah was 500 years old. By the way, what I think that means is Noah was 500 years old when his kids were born. He died at, He was 950 years old when he died. What I really think that means is Noah died at 950. You got that. That's what's on the other side of his tombstone. Um, now, giants, bullies, tyrants. Now, could it be dinosaurs? We'll call it extra-biblical. It's not against Scripture doesn't say that it just could be that could it be that there were just mean nasty people in those days they were tyrannical sure that fits within that con as well um could it be that there were actually human beings that were really large certainly there were human beings we'll find later that were large that fits within that context or at least within the, that word so all of those things fit within the word now i have to then like you would as a student of the word i go well which one of those seems to be clearest to the context now the cool thing is when we get to the extra-biblical territory, we can look and go, we can totally agree and be okay with it. You know, you can think one thing, I think the other. We're both Christians. It's cool. We're not going against Scripture. I'll tell you where I lean on it. I tell you where I lean according to this, by the way. Notice by the end of verse 4 that the men will be very famous, renowned. The word Shem, that means their name is, they were a household name. Now, it tells us in this that it also at the end of this verse, notice it says that there were mighty men. And again, the word for mighty men, for what it's worth, means warrior or, interestingly enough, tyrant. It's the other word that's translated for tyrant. So, uh, by the way, it's the word that's often used, for instance, of you know, of people that were champions uh, within battle. People that were known for being a guy that no one could stand against. Now, if I take a look at this verse, this is what we read in verse 4. There were giants on the earth in, there, in those days. Uh, they were either dinosaurs. They were either big, nasty people. One thing's for sure, there was some form of tyranny or bullying going on. That, I think, is going to be a common theme. And it says, afterward, after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children. That's no surprise. Now, the idea is what some people try to say is, well, when these angels had, you know, got with the women, giants were born. Because after all, when an angel... Is with a woman. Look at what happens. Well, notice the word afterward. For what it's worth, it's kind of noticed. He says, there were giants. And then when these, this thing started to happen, it says that they, their children were born. No one, But notice what it says, that these children were mighty men that were famous. And might I just say it this way? They were famous tyrants. That becomes very evident. So put this together. This is what I have. And forgive me if this sounds too technical. Because the whole point of this is, is that God wants us to have influence over the world instead of the world having influence of us. But this is what he tells us. Is that, first of all, there are these two lineages. The problem is that the girls on Cain's side were fine. And the men over here looked and went, they are fine, I want them. Not her, them. And I'm going to take them on their terms, not on mine, which, by the way, will be a consistent theme throughout all of Scripture, won't it? Israel will look at something else and God says, I want you driving all those people out because if you start looking at them, you'll see their daughters and you'll want that. You'll serve their gods. Solomon's heart wasn't loyal to God, wasn't perfect to God. What was the result of that? He had a thousand women from all these different places and they turned his heart away from the living God to serve the other gods. Everywhere throughout Scripture, you start to see, you start getting jiggy with that over there and this is what happens. So it just seems like he's laying out something at the beginning of this. And the point is, he says, so these guys look at these girls and they go, ooh, you're fine. I'm going to have you and you and you and you. As a result of this, during this time, it's already a tyrannical environment. There's all of a sudden these, these leaders and they're nasty and they're mean and they're martial in the way that they do things. And these people, these guys have, have babies with these women. And as a result of that, these people become the famous leaders of the day. Think about this for a second. These guys compromised to be with these women and their children became the leaders. And God says, this is almost done. 
Because notice the result of it. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. What was the result of this? Who should be the leaders? Shouldn't it be a man over here who isn't willing to bend? Who goes, hey, I won't doubt that those women are fine. I won't doubt that that world over there has enticing things. I don't doubt for a moment that if I spend enough time staring at that, I'm going to want that. But I'm not going. This is where I belong. I'm going to call on this name because that name is more beautiful than that. That name is more permanently beautiful than that is temporarily beautiful. And that name over there is worth everything. And nothing I desire on earth could compare to you, Lord. Uh, this stuff, I, 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 won't doubt, I won't doubt for a moment. This stuff's shiny and got bling-bling, and it's got all kinds of things that appeal to all of the things in my flesh, but I'm going to say no to the flesh because I want to say yes to the spirit you put inside of me, and I want to say yes to, the, to you. And, and if this person becomes a leader, people over here start to go, well, what's happening over here? How do I get to be a part of this? But when these people start stop looking here and start looking here, and they start moving over an inch at a time, and then they have leaders... Nobody's bringing anyone back over here, to be honest, because there's no one left on this side of the camp, and the whole ship is now flipped upside down. Does that make sense? And that's what God looks at, and he goes, I'm not going to play this game forever. Look at what happened. I start thinking, okay, this is the precursor to God's judgment, and the precursor to God's judgment is God's people cease to be God's people. For what it's worth... In the book of Matthew, it's one of my favorite verses. It's also one of the most haunting. When they start asking about the end times and, you know, the whole Antichrist and the, the whole tribulation and all this stuff that just seems like a really awful, awful, you just don't want to be there for it. And that's the other time which, by the way, the Bible makes clear God's going to pour forth his wrath. What's interesting is what he, he makes this one statement, and, and this one statement is... It's such an odd verse, perhaps. Or is it? Look at it with me if you get there. Matthew 24, verse 28. If you're new to the Bible, we're in the first book of the Old Testament, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. You're like, well, that doesn't help me much. Matthew chapter 24, verse 28. He says, this is what you're going to see when that you know that this time is near. You're going to see all these natural disasters. That's kind of what we look at normally, right? And you know, like, you'll see earthquakes. You'll see all these horrible things, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, famine. And, of course, anybody that sort of really wants to walk around with an A-frame saying the end of the world is near or telling you to quit your church to go and just listen to his radio station jumps on that stuff right away. Do you realize how many earthquakes there have been this this year? I mean, how many times ash has been dumped into the sky? I mean, all those things that you're going to find. But he also says, there's also going to be these false Christs popping up, these false teachers, and they're going to deceive people and lead them away. And then he says this particular verse, and to me, this is the verse that's the dagger. In verse 20, chapter 24, verse 28, he says, For wherever the carcass is, there the... And you'll either have the term eagles or vultures or something like that, right? You have that in your text. We'll gather. Now, what's a carcass? It's a dead body. It's a dead body. And 
when a dead body exists, things that feast on a dead body come and congregate. Does that make sense? Look, there's a dead body. What are vultures or, or eagles in this sense? They're things that come down and they live off of a dead body. Now, here's what he said right before that. There'll be false teachers, false prophets, false Christs. So who do they, what are they, according to the next verse? They're the vultures. They're the vultures. Okay, so if they're the vultures, and there they are teaching, leading astray God's people, what's the carcass? Yeah, it's the church. And he says, where the dead body is, that which lives off of dead bodies is going to be. And he goes, this is the sign of the end times. It's interesting, when we're looking for you know, earthquakes, and whoa, there's another earthquake, and a big one in Tokyo, and a big one in this and that. But it's like, well, what about the other thing that God said was a barometer of the end times, which was his own people? He goes, look, at that's my beautiful bride. But in the end of it all, basically we've got this thing that barely has a pulse, this remnant in the part of the body. It's like, because the body doesn't always die all at the same time, if you notice. I mean, sometimes it's like most of the body's dead, but this part's still functioning for a moment. I mean, especially if you've watched movies as of recent. But then the idea is that God goes, look, I'm going to pull that one thing out that's still living... Because the rest of it's going to be dead and then it's going to be time to pour forth wrath just like I have right here. Because here it just tells us that God's people, these sons of God, if I take it for what God had already established in the last two chapters, those that made that called in the name of the Lord now, what are they doing? Now they've, got, they've gone and chased after the, the, the attractive things of the world and have really ceased to have any influence whatsoever. And then I look at the culture we live in, beloved, and it's like, it is so awkward and anti-cultural to be a Christian. And, you know, you walk by these gigantic church buildings that um, are apartment complexes and so forth. And I look at those, and people are like, how dare you? Now, you can't hand that out. That's got a scripture on it. You can't go in. Can you do that in your workplace? Can you actually talk about Jesus in your workplace? It's funny because you can hand someone a crayon and no one seems to have a problem with it. But as long as you get to this particular thing, it's because, well, after all, we all, and you know what happens is Christians are the ones that we're just not known for fighting back, so bullies congregate to that. So they're like, well, you know what? And all a bullies is a fear, fearful kid that happens to appear bigger. Now, let's get to verse 5, and then everything just sort of spills right into it. It just rolls. This is where it gets to. Verse 5, then the Lord. Notice this isn't God, this sort of creator person, but the Lord, the one who's supposed to have dominion over his people, saw the wickedness of man, and it was great on the earth. Now, we already recognize that there are the men who are famous now, the men who are worshipped or adulated or elevated are men who have no interest in God. By the way, is that any different today? What's really sad is how often that can happen in the church, and we'll worship in essence or adulate people who, have, who to be honest, will be very anti-Christian in their approach. But it's okay because they, they act well, or they can slam dunk, or they can write a song or whatever. And, and, and in all of that, it's like we look as a church, and we're so wooed into the horrible, shiny things of this world that there isn't any more influence we have. And God looks and he goes, let me tell you how bad it got. If God were to sit here and talk to us about what happened, because he would go, God, what did it take for you to actually wipe out almost every person on the planet? How far does it have to go before you do that? Because some people are going to call you quite mean for that. Well, of course they are, because they're still trying to invent God on their terms. But on God's terms, this is what he demands. And he says, let me tell you, every intent of the thought of the heart was continually evil, always. If you fit another superlative in there, you're redundant. Remove any one of them. 
Some of the intents of the thoughts of the heart were continually evil all the time. Okay, what does that mean? That means that sometimes you intended to do something, but your intention was bad, and that bore forth the thought, and that thought then was always evil from that point on. God doesn't say that. Every thought of the heart was continually evil all the time. Yeah, but your intentions were okay. He doesn't say that. Every intention of the thought of your heart, not just the intention of the thought in your head, somebody had mistaught you, you know, you're really a good person, but your environment has taught you to be mean and nasty, and you've been taught to hate. Listen, it got to the point where, and again, this is people that's supposed to be God's people now. These are people that are supposed to represent him, where people around them are supposed to be the most important thing, second to God. And he looks and he goes, look, at there wasn't an intention in your thoughts that were in your heart that were anything but evil ever. What's left? The entire lump is leavened. There comes a part where a person can be so irreparably hardened, there's no getting to them. Unless God does something pretty radical, which is interesting because we start looking at these terms, the intent, the thought, the heart, and only and always are for the first time mentioned in all of these, except for that last word, always. Because the word always is the word for day. That God invented days and nights and days and nights. Yom, when everything was good and now it's everything is bad. And this is where the Lord sighs. That word when they said Noah will bring comfort to his people, that particular term, Bechem, is the word that's used here for God was sorry. And the idea is that God just goes, Now, You'd say, well, what could cause God to do that? Doesn't he know everything? Just because you know something doesn't mean it doesn't hurt you when it happens. I mean, from the day that I was born, it was pretty evident my mom was dying of cancer. And we watched her erode from a woman that was vibrant and full of fight to a woman that was a skeleton that we would carry to room to room because she could barely... We taught her how to go like this because it hurt her to move her legs so that she could move from one room to the other. At nine... At 10, she was primarily bedridden at my 10. It was evident she was going to die. It was very evident. There was no denying that unless something really weird and wild and wonderful and wacky happened, she was going to die. But in February, when she passed away, we grieved. It didn't take us by surprise. The day did in my case. I mean, sooner or later, you knew it was going to happen. They actually signed a day and said, by this day, she'll be dead. And my mom is as... Uh, full of fight as she was, on that day pulled every tube out of her body and walked around just to prove to the doctors that they were wrong. That was classically my mom. If you wonder where that stubborn side came from, I should probably warn my wife before we were married. Well, but inevitably she's going to die. And when she did, we grieved. It wasn't a surprise, but it's still the reality sinks in, okay, this is it. And in the same way the Lord is sighing. He's, he's sighing a big sigh. And, and, and here's, the, to me, the most amazing thing isn't that God was grieved, or even, for that matter, that he was sorry, as it, the, the, the way it's listed here is he was sorry that he made man. It caused him to breathe deeply. Or that he was grieved, that's the part that amazes me. For what it's worth. So, the word for grieve this is the word for feel, literally to feel physical pain. It's used 17 times. This is the first of the times that will be used. Now look at 
for a person that goes, well, I mean, God was really sorry that he made people. Wow, what kind of God is that? I'm telling you, it's the kind of God that grieves over somebody. What kind of God do you want? Do you want a God that doesn't grieve over you? Look, at if, if, if I didn't care about you and you just tried to make my life miserable, you could irritate me, even frustrate me, but you can't grieve me. The only person that has the capacity of grieving me is someone I love. Think about it. What kind of God do you want? I have a God who grieves over people who, by the way, are doing everything in the world continually without stop, nonstop, at the intent of the thought of their hearts. It was evil. I grieve them. I mean, where do you shut it off? Even with somebody that you, you try to show care to, but they just burn and burn and burn you and burn you and burn you and burn you, and finally you're like, I'm so sick of this. I'm so tired of this. I'm just shutting that off, man. There's, I've got to build a wall just to survive on this. God's like, I'm looking, you've done everything for me to hate you. You've done everything, and I am just not. I'm, I haven't shut my heart up to you. I'm not doing that. I'm not that kind of God. I mean, look at this. I just can't help but think, God, thank you that you would be grieved. And it's interesting because I get to Ephesians 4.30 and it tells me not to grieve his Holy Spirit. And I think God never changed. I don't want to grieve him. And then I think about somebody, okay, well, where's someone where God takes obvious delight in his heart? And I go, well, wait a minute. There's this scripture in the book of Psalms. And, and I can't help but, but be blown away by this because as I look at this text... I'm starting to think, well, what would be the opposite of every intent of the thought of my heart? What would that be like? And as I go through the book of Psalms, which tends to show me the heart of people, have you noticed that? It's like I see the what and the where and the when in other texts. And then I look to this one, and I go, well, well, you know, this actually kind of shows me the why. And as I look at these texts, I get to Psalm 19. Go and flip there for a moment, would you? Can you tell me who wrote at least who Psalm 19 is attributed to? To David, excellent. Would you look at the last word, verse of, it, of that psalm, that song with me? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If it's acceptable in your sight, well then, um, who's making the rules? God is here. And I can't help but think, this is somebody that God said, this guy's after my heart. And, and, and I, I want this for me. I want this for you. I, I don't want somebody, I, I don't want to be someone that's telling God, this is where you can stop or any of that. And I look at this and I think, can this be me? Because this is a guy who changed the world. I know he was full of problems. And notice he even had problems with the same two things because there's a little bit of Cain in every one of us that, you know, in that sense, that, you know, there's this, he was still a man of violence. That's why he couldn't build the temple. And he was a man that had a real problem with women. But he was still somebody in the midst of all of that, in the midst of that overcast, was this powerful son that shone upon his heart that said, I still want to please you. I want to do it on your, on your terms. Could you check? I mean, wouldn't he say, search my heart, God, search it, and see if there's any wicked way in me? I don't even want an intent, a single intent, or a thought in that heart to be ever evil at any time. That's what David's asking. And I, and I can't help but think, David's like going, God, cleanse me from Cain in this. And so God's like, it's, it's, time, to, it's time to judge this, because there is nothing left but... 
one guy. And it tells us this. By the way, that again, verse 7 now. The Lord said, I will destroy man from whom created off the face of the earth, everything, because even the animals are violent. And then it says in verse 8, but Noah found grace. It's the first time in Scripture of 139 times you'll read the word grace. And it's for a man who, by the way, again, was going to bring rest to people, comfort to people. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, it tells us he was two things in verse 9. He was just... And he was perfect. And you go, perfect? Well, that's what it took to find grace, oddly enough. For what it's worth, the word just, again, uh, it's the word tzaddik. It means to be lawful. It's used 257 times. It's the first time it's used, by the way, right here. The word perfect, for what it's worth. And again, remember, in a Hebrew mindset, either something's done or it's not done. It's the word for something completed, entire. Uh, and the word tamim. And the word tamim, for what it's worth here, it's also the first time of 56 times the word will be used, um, is, is a person who's, who's the real deal all the way through. He's not somebody that, you know, the, the first five inches are pretty cool and he seems like he loves the Lord, but then you get beyond that and there's really something awful on the other side of it. It's like this guy all the way through is mine. And I love him for it. And so we had three sons, hot in expansion, and a guy whose name means name, Shem. The earth was corrupt before God. Now notice this as we bring this to close. The earth was filled with what, according to verse 11? Did you get it? So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. And the word for corrupt, for what it's worth, is utterly polluted, or literally it means to bring to ruin. Let me tell you what brought the earth, what's killing the world. It isn't, by the way, depleting the rainforest, though that we can agree that that's a problem, or whatever. It's not because they didn't recycle. It's because sin, that's what kills the earth. And it says it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God said to Noah, the end of the flesh has come before me because of this. Four members, member means because, because the earth is filled with what, according to this? Violence. Did you get it? My people have no influence anymore. Though, listen, the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them from the earth then. So I want you to make an ark. I want to get you out before I pour forth my punishment. And God, by the way, has this habit of rescuing his people out of, the, out of the situation before wrath comes. And by the way, it's exactly what Peter tells us. He knows how to pull his people out before he actually pours forth his judgment. So he says, look, here's the rundown. This is the way I want you to make it. I want you to make it, according to this, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. This should be our last thing we get right down to the end of it. A cubit, what's that? That's the distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger. We tend to use this term fatal cubit, and the reason is quite simple. Because if you took that tip of your finger and put it right where your head is, this ends up right at about where your heart is. And the idea is that what may make it to your head may not make it down into your heart, and God wants it there. And that's why I call it the fatal cubit, because that cubit is the difference between what we know and what we, who we are. Well, in that, if we put it into terms then, if that's roughly a foot and a half by the average height of a guy back in those days was 5'6", by American terms, that puts it this way. It was 150 yards by 25 yards by 15 yards. Or perhaps this may make it a little easier. The length of it was a 45-story building. Its width was a 7.5-story building. Its height was a 4.5-story building. Does that kind of help you get an image? So you take it, you know, a particular building around here and find something 45 stories high. Flip it down. Make it seven and a half stories wide. Make it four and a half stories tall. So if you think about it, if you look at something and you see something four and a half stories tall, you'd say that was the height of the ark. Which, by the way, apparently appears as if it'll take about 100 years to make. That's an awful lot of time to give people a warning. 
Now, again, water's never fallen from the sky, and God says, I'm going to flood this entire place. I want you to recognize that, so you're going to need a big boat because it's not just going to be you. Notice he says, by the way, I'm going to bring the animals to you. Did you notice that? Because you're going to be busy making that boat, so don't worry about that. My job will be to bring those things to you. And I do love the fact it's like, listen, my job is I'm going to bring those people to you, that, those things to you that, I, that are going to still be saved. Your job is to be a preacher of righteousness, which is exactly what the scripture tells us that Noah was, by the way, was a preacher of righteousness. So he makes it say, he goes, I'm going to bring the floodwaters. But verse, four, verse um, 18, it says, I will establish my covenant. First time the word covenant is used of 293 times. The word means confederacy. And I've made this covenant with you. So I want you to take everything according to verse 20, according to their species. That's the word for kind in this mean um, so, you know, whether that's a bird or an animal or a creeping thing, um, it basically, and the idea of that's kind of cool because the idea is that within two dogs is the DNA for every dog. I don't know if you're aware of that. And it's kind of fun because really, how does he fit everything? It's like, first of all, how do you even know how many animals lived in these days? God doesn't even make clear to that. Well, what about dinosaurs? And all that? You could take a couple eggs if you needed to. God was the one who was, he was responsible for getting them on this thing. By the way, I think it's amazing that a guy built back in those days a 45 story long boat. That's cool. When his kids were born at 500, that means they're going to be, they're going to be getting to 100 years old when the flood comes, which means some of those years, they're not going to be much help. It's like you don't hand a three-year-old a hammer or a chisel and say, get out of it, boys. And this is before planes and electric anythings. And he looks and he goes, look it, I'm going to have you, now here's the last thing in this, did I already say that? Well, here it is because I'm just tagging on it. Is that he made him make the weirdest thing in the world in the days with, with a message that's the weirdest message anyone's ever heard. So that, and if it's that weird, it's going to stick in your head. I mean, think of it. All the things that people tell you, the one thing that's like all the, the people that ask for money, if someone said, look, I'm looking for money so that we can go and shave all of the wombats in Australia so, you know, and then paint their hair pink, you'd probably remember that tonight. You'd forget about maybe the cancer and the other things unless you've given to it. But that one you'd remember because it's weird. And water's never fallen from the sky. And you're going to make this gigantic, you know, 45-story boat. And people are going to walk by in the middle of this area where it's not raining. And you're going to go, what, what, what you doing here? And he's like, I'm making a boat. What are you making a boat for? Oh, it's going to, water's going to fall down from the sky. And you go, that's never happened before. That's weird. Yeah, it's only weird because it hasn't happened. It doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. And so, I mean, and then, then, by the way, then I'm going to go in. We're going to have this own little zoo where we're going to take two of everything. And God's just going to bring them here. No, no, see, God's going to bring them here. He's going to bring him here, and as he brings him here, I'm going to take him into the boat. Three stories high, as far as we're going to make it three stories. I'm going to put a window up at the top so we can feel like we're free range. And we're going to, we're all going to be in this thing, and then we're going to start over because all y'all violent and all y'all about women. It's interesting because it appears as if Noah has one wife. His sons each have one wife. It's an interesting thing that that's still happening here. And then all of it doesn't say that, it doesn't say Noah turned to his sons and said, okay, pick your favorite one. That's the one I want you to take. Don't worry, the other ones are going to, we're going to kind of wash them away. But in all of that, he says, this is the deal you're making the boat and then people are like what are you going to do well the animals are going to come the animals are going to come well that's going to be weird but the moment two ostriches show up and start walking into that boat i'm thinking that doesn't happen every day either i should really think about this and it does and two elephants and and you think okay this this isn't normal and we read that he was a preacher of righteousness now look at let's pray but as we pray in the end of it all, notice verse, the last verse of the chapter, verse 22, Noah obeys. He obeys because he's, he's right. He's through and through a re, the real deal. 
And the way that God shows it is that this guy's willing to do what I tell him. It doesn't have to make sense. As a matter of fact, it's going to be weird to everyone else around you. But that weird is what gives you an opportunity for testimony. Listen, it's that weird that gives you an opportunity for testimony. So when someone says, why don't you do that? Why don't you dress like that? Why don't you go to that? Why aren't you doing that? Or why do you do this instead? You've got that Bible around you all the time. That's a weird thing. People don't do that. Or, or all of a sudden you're singing. you got your headphones on. And you're singing out loud. And it's a praise song. And that's just weird. And you know you're being weird. And you know the enemy's going to play that on you, isn't he? He's going to go, don't do that. People are going to think you're weird. And God says, yeah, I'm going to make, I'm not asking you to be weird for weird's sake. There's enough of those people in Camden. I'm saying the weirdest thing in Camden is somebody that loves Jesus because it's the one thing they haven't seen. And if I drove a needle through the entire in my neck from one side to the other, people would be like, cool, I think I've seen it before. But the moment I open up a Bible, people are like, what in the world is that? That's weird. And I'm like, yes. And how many times have somebody come up to you at a moment like that, and it's like, if, it's like, if I don't step into this one and bring, bring Jesus into this one, my rear end's going to hurt because God's kicking me so hard. So why is it you carry that book? Or, well, you, you know, and all of a sudden you're looking and it's like, what is that? What are you listening to? I'm listening to a, a praise song. And you're like fearful to say because you know people are going to go, ugh. And then and they go, well, what is it praising? And you're like, uh, how do I not bring Jesus into that one? And you realize, guys, like, I'm gonna, there are times I'm going to make you do something that's going to be a little weird to you. I want you to go and walk up to that person and, and talk to them. But people are going to think I'm weird. God's like, and? That's all you got is they're going to think you're weird? That's supposed to stop you. Like, look at it. It's that weirdness that's going to draw them in enough that you're actually going to be able to share with them. And this is a country where nobody wants to feel awkward. Nobody wants to stand out. God says, yeah, but I'm going to use this. So this is what I want to pray. I want to pray for us that God would make us the right kind of weird and that we wouldn't back off of it. But in that, that we would be willing to stand our ground and grow a spine on this side because mighty men over there that are popular and honored and worshipped on that side that are tyrants, raping people and they're dominating people and people still worship them. And on this side, Christians are so busy being jellyfish, we don't have any definition. But it's time for us to actually start being real people of God and to stop being drawn over by those horrible things. And maybe today you're actually in a place where there's something that really has its talons in you. I mean, it's just sinking itself into you and you're like, you know what, I feel like I'm already in that side of the camp. Here's the good news. I'm throwing you a life raft right now. I'm throwing you a rope and I'm challenging you today. If you actually give God permission, he'll pull you to where you need to be. But that's your choice to make. And lastly, if you haven't even accepted this gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you, today is the day to say yes to him. And in in saying yes to him, God wants to transform you right now. Make you his own. Pull you out of that destruction. Because the entire world, like it or not, is on the Titanic. And the only life raft is the one where he pulls you off the boat before it goes down. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this chapter. And I know this has been quite a lengthy uh, talk through this chapter, but there's so much said in here that we don't want to miss. And God, I, I want to pray for this, the church as a whole with, that we're a part of. It's still your bride, and we're only part of that bride. We're a sequin on the dress, and that's enough. But God, I, I, I just want... I, I just want us to be real, like Noah... Through and through, not just a part of us praising you, the Sunday part, and then the rest of us not. God, we desperately need you to make us through and through the real deal. So Lord, blind our eyes to the temptations of this world. 
to those things that somehow it seems like that if we just went on that side of the boat, life would be so much easier. God, I, I pray that we would be calling on your name and we would be receiving you on your terms. And your terms are not about our works, but about your gift. Even as Noah found favor in your eyes. I want to thank you, God, that you are a God who can be grieved. And I don't want to grieve you ever. I want to please you and delight you. So I pray first, Lord, if there be anyone who has not accepted your gift today, and your Holy Spirit's gone forth to, to, to move and to bring life and light as your word's gone out, and they're not really sure whether they've ever accepted the gift of, of, of you, Lord Jesus, dying on the cross for their guilt and their sin and their shame, and then raising again to offer them new life. If that be them, right now, if there be anyone... Pray this prayer with me right now, beloved. God, I admit it, I'm a sinner. I recognize that makes me guilty. But I believe you punished all of my guilt on the cross, allowing your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die there, to pay the price that I rightly deserve. Then he died on that cross for me, but then he rose again to offer me a new life, one that is no longer encumbered by guilt or shackled by shame or by bondage the things of this world, but rather one where I can live in the freedom of you to celebrate my King and to have a life that's free to serve and love others. So God, I just say yes to this gift of Jesus, confessing him as my Lord and Savior. And if that's you, I just ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, those are my words. Let that be my prayer, so be it. And so I say amen. And Lord, I pray for every believer here, be them brand new or otherwise. First of all, God, I want to pray for the way we view other people. That as men or the men in this room or the women to men, that we wouldn't look at them as something we can draw from, that we can take from, or to look at them as some form of creature for our pleasure first and foremost, but rather an object that we can be serving, that we can represent you. I pray, Lord, that there would be no violence in our hearts, no bitterness or unforgiveness, as Jesus, if you taught us in your Sermon on the Mount, but that we would be people absolutely free to love and to serve and to celebrate you. And God, with that, that you would cleanse from us anything that smells like, looks like, sounds like, or is in any other way reminiscent of Cain, but that we would be people that would call on you, allow you to be the architect of our reinventions. And I pray, Lord, you make us holy, that you would search our hearts and eradicate from them anything, Lord, and the intent or the thought of our hearts, that every intent, every thought within our heart be only holy, only pleasing, only acceptable to you all the time. So let us be unbendable people when it comes to this world and totally bendable to your spirit. And change this world around us, Lord, by changing the world in us first and then making us world changers. May we delight in your delight. In the name of your Son, through whom all this is possible, Jesus the Christ. Amen.